turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Zechariah. We will read the fourth chapter of Zechariah, just the introductory part of it, down through about verse 7. Zechariah, right towards the old uh, end of your Old Testament, and uh, fourth chapter, verses 1 through 7. And the angel that talked with me came again and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep, and said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps, which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, and the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace, unto it. May God add his blessing to this reading and hearing of his word. In our series on the Minor Prophets, we have come to the book of Zechariah, and we looked at the first three chapters of Zechariah last uh, sermon on this series, and we saw the historical context that this is placed in. Zechariah was a prophet who was a contemporary with Haggai. You remember that Haggai was the man that God raised up to admonish the people for their recalcitrance in moving ahead in the building of the Lord's temple after their return from captivity. They went into captivity around 600 B.C. into Jerusalem, into uh, Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, the temple was burned, and they were led away captive. Daniel, of course, and Ezekiel went into captivity. And then Daniel uh, remembered the promise of God that this captivity would be for some 70 years. And uh, right at the close of the 70 years, uh, Daniel prayed and said, Lord, the time has now come for you to set your people free. And amazingly, uh, you remember the uh, great feast that they were having in uh, Belshazzar, uh, the uh, prince regent there of Babylon, suddenly in the midst of the feast, sees the hand, literally a hand, writing upon the wall, many, many tekel yupsarin, uh, and no one could read the writing. Finally, Daniel is called in, and he says, uh, it says that <clears throat> your days, uh, that thou art weighed in the balance and found wanting, and that your days are numbered. He says, as a matter of fact, tonight uh, your kingdom will be overthrown, and that very night the Medes and the Persians overthrew the Babylonian uh, kingdom, empire. One of the first acts of Darius, the 
the Persian king, or Cyrus, excuse me, the Persian king, was to send God's people back to their land. He issued a proclamation that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and even went on to issue orders to assist them in the rebuilding of their city. They went back and they engaged in this, but they met a great deal of opposition, some of it from supposed friends, some of it from obvious enemies, and uh, they met political opposition. Finally, uh, they were forced to cease. Uh, They had started uh, the rebuilding of the temple. They had only laid the foundation, and uh, the opposition grew very heavy. They were forced to stop, and for some 16 years, nothing was done. Nothing except they built their own homes, nice homes. And God raised up Haggai, and he says, You know, you say the time has not come to rebuild the Lord's temple, but I notice you've built air-conditioned homes. I notice you've got Cadillacs sitting in your front yard, and yet you say that the time hasn't come to build the Lord's house. Well, the Lord says the time has come, and the reason that you're so uh, poor, really, you you look for much and it comes to little. Uh, you put money in your pocket. It's like a bag with holes in it. And the reason is that the Lord can't bless you until you turn around and set this matter straight. And they heard Haggai and they obeyed Haggai. They began right away. But there was still a lot of opposition, powerful enemies. And then God raises up Zechariah. Zechariah, the man with the strange visions. He tells us of these visions in the opening chapters. He says that he saw a low place in the earth and myrtle trees there, a horseman there among the trees, and behind him a company of horsemen. And as we come to interpret the symbol, uh, we find that this spoke of the low state of Israel, not a great cedar, but just little evergreen trees, myrtle trees. But there... Hidden among the shadows was the Lord Jesus Christ, God watching after his own, God there with all of the forces needed to carry through. They had the promise in that vision of the divine presence. And then there was another vision about four horns, and this speaks of powerful enemies from every direction who were coming against them. But suddenly four carpenters, four smiths go, and with great hammers, They break these horns in pieces. For every form of opposition, God has a force that he will put in motion to answer it. Here we have the divine protection. Then he gave us a vision of a man going out to measure the walls and the breadth of the city. And he says, uh, no point in doing that. This is going to be like a city without walls. Divine prosperity. God's going to bless his people in, in an amazing way. And then finally, the fourth vision, there was a picture of Joshua, the high priest, standing in filthy garments before the Lord, and uh, Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the people would feel, how can God bless us, realizing that Joshua represented the people in the presence of God? How can God bless us when we're so sinful and there's so many sinners in our midst? And the Lord spoke a word to an angel who stood by, and he said, Take the filthy garments off of him and clothe him in white. And divinely provided purity was available for their sin. Now we come to the fifth vision. 
the vision that we read of the the lampstand, the golden candlestick, <clears throat> seven lamps, a bowl up above with seven pipes that lead to the seven lamps, two trees, uh, two olive trees that drip oil into this bowl that feeds the lamps. Now, here's the vision. <clears throat> what is the uh, significance of it? What do the parts represent? Well, we find from many places in Scripture that the lampstand stands for the church, for the people of God, for individual believers letting their light shine. Christ said to his followers, Ye are the light of the world. He said, Let your light shine before men so that they will behold you and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, uh, the <clears throat> book of Revelation, in the first uh, chapter of Revelation, you've got Christ standing among uh, the lampstands, and it says the seven uh, lampstands or the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So the lampstand symbolizes the people of God in their light-bearing capacity, witnessing uh, to a true relationship to God and how this can be entered into and God's will and God's ways and God's word. The oil, of course, symbolizes the Spirit of God. Always oil, symbolizing God's anointing power, the power of his mighty spirit, which enables the church and the individual Christian to shine brightly. Here is the real light. And then again, uh, the pipes would speak of the channels through which the spirit's influences reach the lamps. How does the Christian shine? How is he to maintain the glow? Well, there are certain channels. One channel is what we're engaged in right now, the preaching of the Word of God. This is a channel by which God's Spirit uh, is communicated to us in his uh, sanctifying influence. Again, God's Word. Again, prayer. Uh, the ordinances that he has appointed, these are the channels uh, whereby the Spirit's influence has reached the lamps. The Parts we understand, the principle he then dwells on, as the question is asked by <clears throat> Zechariah, what is this all about? Uh, Knowest thou not what these be? And he said, no. And the answer is, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the governor. Zerubbabel was the leader uh, who faced all the opposition in a sense. He was the the governor, almost the counterpart of a king. This is the word of the Lord unto this man who faces such opposition. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Here's kind of a motto. Here's a principle that this man in this situation and every Christian is to follow. Every Christian, when faced by opposition, whether it's the opposition of the flesh, the world, or the devil, whatever the obstacle may be, here is the principle whereby he may conquer, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Might and power would speak of every human resource and ability, whether it be mental, physical, 
whether it be uh, his capacity as a teacher or an orator, uh, his winning ways, uh, his determination, anything that is a human resource, we would term might or power. God says, not by might, not by power, and not by your uh, shrewdness, Zerubbabel, and not by your leadership capacity, and not by your force of determination to batter on through, and not by your ability as a preacher, Frank Barker, and not by your understanding even of the Word of God, not by your ability to present it, will any obstacle be removed in a man's heart or in the world to the progress of God's kingdom, not by might nor by spirit, not by oratory or intelligence, not by might nor power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And the point would, of course, be that we are to rely upon him alone. All confidence is to be placed, not in our own abilities. How often do we hear someone say, goodness gracious, if we could just win old George to the Lord, he'd be a marvelous witness. He's a real good insurance salesman. (laughs) If he can sell insurance, surely he could uh, sell the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, What a marvelous witness he would be. Well, not by insurance salesmanship talents, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And the Lord might take someone who doesn't have the natural gifts that George has and might use him in a tremendous way. The promise is then given. We have seen the parts and the principle. Now we see the promise. Notice what he says in the seventh verse. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain. And the literal translation of this is a very dramatic statement. Before Zerubbabel, a plain. God speaking to this mountain, to the hill of difficulty, to the opposition that he faces, and God will address the mountain by his spirit, and he will say, become a plain and the mountain will become a plain. This promise of success, when when Zerubbabel proceeds, not depending on his own shrewdness or his own ability as a leader, but depending on God alone, as he proceeds to carry out the God-assigned task to rebuild the temple, every mountain shall become a plain before him, as God speaks to each mountain in turn. The... Completion of the task is promised in this same context. Uh, uh, the conquering <clears throat> of obstacles and the completion of the task. In the last half of that seventh verse, it goes on to say, And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, His hands shall also finish it. Here is the promise, the completion of the task. You will lay the top stone. It will be all of grace. God will accomplish this. But he will see to it that you who laid the foundation will also complete the temple. Here is the promise to Zerubbabel of 
the consummation of the task assigned to him, divine promise of success to God's people when the principle of not by might nor by power but by my spirit is followed. We not only have the promise brought out, but we have the providence of God that's active in the situation brought out. Who hath despised the day of small things? The people would look at what little bit they had done, and they would be discouraged, and uh, Zerubbabel would go out, maybe, and he would uh, hold a plummet uh, by the wall to see if it had been laid straight. You know what it says? That God has his eye even on that small action of Zerubbabel. God's providence is overseeing every bit. Don't be discouraged at uh, what would seem to be the day of small things. Uh, God's hand is in it. He will watch over the work. He will see to it that it's brought to completion. Uh, The seven eyes, the eyes of the Lord, run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And they see each little progress made. The provision of God for his church is then brought out. The supply of his spirit in the 10th verse, uh, in the 11th verse, Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me, and he said, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. We spoke of the vision where you had the bowl of oil that fed seven pipes into the seven candlesticks. We said that the oil represented God's spirit. But we see here that the oil is continually supplied to the reservoir by two trees, two olive trees, that grip, drip the golden oil. Now, no one ever saw an olive tree that just dripped its oil like this. And uh, what is being brought before us here is the uh, abundance of supply, a good picture of the generous measure in which God bestows his spirit upon his church, the availability of God's spirit to carry out the work assigned. Uh, The significance of the two trees, he says, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Who are the two anointed ones? He's been speaking of Zerubbabel, the civil ruler, almost corresponding to king, and Joshua, the high priest. Here are the two offices. Both of these men were anointed Uh, Each holder of these offices were anointed. These men are symbolized by the olive tree. In other words, God's uh, supply to his people would come through these leaders, uh, these offices in a sense. He would provide uh, the needed leadership ability, just like he says he gave the church some to be prophets and some teachers, some evangelists for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, the appointment of, again, channels of blessing to his people. He uses means when he would equip his people to do their task. This means, in effect, that uh, 
You and I, we need not fear any lack of God's provision for us to fulfill the task assigned. Uh, We are engaged in the building of his temple. It's just a different temple. Uh, The literal, physical temple then symbolized the spiritual temple that God's always been building in the world. This is a temple comprised of living stones. Each Christian is a living stone built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. When were you quarried out of the rock and set in your place in God's spiritual temple? And when will the last living stone be placed in his temple and and then the temple will be complete and the Lord Jesus Christ shall come? When will these things be? We are building the temple even now of the Lord and we have ample provision through the officers that he's given to bring God's people into a realization of what they have in him to an appropriation of the power of his spirit to carry on the task. Uh, We have uh, no need to fear opposition. God himself shall cause it to become a plane before us. We have to concern ourselves with two things primarily. Number one, to rely not on our own abilities but on the Lord's spirit to do the work. And number two, to use the means, the channels, whereby the power is communicated to us. Now, you notice an interesting thing happening. A little further over in the sixth chapter, in the ninth verse, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take them of the captivity. And then he lists a number of men, Heldai and Tobijah, Jediah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Jephthaniah, then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. A deputation had come from those Jews who had remained in captivity. Uh, the privilege of going back was offered to all, but some of the Jews remained in Babylon, and they managed there from uh, their own efforts in Babylon and from the, uh, from the people there. They managed to get gold and silver to help in the building of the temple, and they sent this by their representatives on to Jerusalem to help in the building of the temple. But when they arrive with this silver and gold, an interesting thing happens. God tells uh, Zechariah to take these men and their gold and to make a crown out of this precious metal that's come from the foreign country and take this crown and place it upon the head of the high priest. Now, this uh, this is entirely wrong. This is something that was not done. The offices of priest and ruler were separated in the Old Testament. You remember on one occasion when the king came in to offer uh, in the Lord's house, to offer the sacrifice, he was faced by the high priest and he was told, It does not pertain unto you, O king, to make such an offering. And immediately he was smitten with leprosy for having crossed the boundary for having violated uh, this division between the offices. But notice what's said here. 
combine the offices. Take this silver, crown the head of the high priest, make him the ruler. Then notice what it goes on to say, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. Right away we know what we're doing. We've got here a prefiguring of the Messiah. This designation of the branch is a messianic designation, applies to this coming Savior who's been promised by so many of the prophets. He shall grow up out of his place. This speaks of his obscure origin. He will not descend suddenly in a mighty uh, thunderclap from heaven. He will grow up out of his place, an obscure origin, uh, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. What Zerubbabel has been doing really is only a picture of what the branch will do, what this man who will come of such humble origin, a shoot out of the line of Jesse and David. It's only a picture of the great temple that he will build. He will build a temple, not, not you or me, really. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. In him the office of king and priest will become one. He will hold both offices. He will be both the go-between, the priest, the go-between, the mediator between God and man, and he will be king. He will be the ruler of God's people. And the council of peace shall be between them both. The council of peace would suggest the council that produces peace. He, in the exercise of these two offices, will produce peace. In the exercise of the office of priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, by offering up a perfect sacrifice to God himself for the sin of his people, for your guilt and my guilt, for Zachariah's guilt, for Joshua's guilt, for Moses, for Abraham, for Paul, for Peter, by exercising the office of priest and offering himself as the sacrifice, he will bring about peace. The only true peace that can ever exist, peace between God and man, peace in the heart of men. And as exercising his office of king, he will overcome their enemies. He will put down enemy after enemy and bring peace throughout the world. What are your enemies? Are your enemies the communists? Your real enemies are death and sin and flesh, and these are the enemies that he will conquer. He'll take the sting out of death. And when he's died for your sins, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And when he comes to dwell within, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, you're under grace. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. He will overcome your real enemies, the enemies of your soul, and produce peace. A 
priest upon his throne. The two offices, by one he purchases our salvation, by the other he applies it. He applies it sovereignly. He overcomes our resistance and he overcomes every other resistance. You notice the material that the crown was made of? It was made of gold brought from heathen lands. And even this is explained uh, a little further on, the significance of this. Verse 14, the crowns shall be then taken and hung up. The crown shall be to Helam and Tobiah and Jediah and to him the son of Zephaniah for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. You see what the gold and silver represented? This priest upon his throne who builds his temple, he will be joined in the building of his temple by the heathen, by the Gentile nations, by they that are afar off. They shall come, and they too shall be a part of this amazing temple that he shall build. Hang that crown right there on the wall as a memorial that the heathen brought it, and one day they shall bring their offerings to this great king-priest who will come. Oh, brethren, the Lord Jesus shall have those from every tribe and tongue and nation who fall at his feet and say, Worthy is the Lamb. He shall have the heathen for his inheritance under the uttermost parts of the earth. That, that crown still hanging. There's still those that are yet to make up his crown, yet to make up a part of his inheritance. They're out there waiting. They're waiting for the means to reach him. They're waiting for you and I, as a part of our responsibility unto God, to go tell them of Jesus Christ so that they can become builders in his temple and a part of his inheritance. Brethren, only by resting on this priest-king will you find peace. Have you done this? Is he your priest-king? It's not enough that he be your priest. It's not enough that he be your king. He must be your priest and king. You must have gone to him from, for forgiveness, for removal of your guilt through his death. You must trust him for that by faith. I rely on you to do that for me. And you must have submitted your will to him as your Lord. And then he's your priest king. And then you have peace with God. And then we must go. We must go and bring to him those precious ones that are to be a part of his inheritance. We must tell others. I challenge you to come and to go. Come and talk with me. If you're not sure of your relationship to Jesus Christ, or if you're sure you're not related, come and talk. And let's get this matter of peace with God and the overcoming of those enemies straight tonight.